Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, a corner for parents and caretakers fighting and surviving pediatric cancer. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Welcome to Family Chemotherapy. I'm very excited to have Renee with us today. And she has some history in pediatric cancer, even though maybe not necessarily personally impacted by it, but she's also a cancer survivor. So I'd like to jump in and say, welcome, Renee. Thank you so much for joining me today. And if you wouldn't mind, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am a psychologist and I was working in a pediatric cancer center um, with children and adolescents diagnosed with cancer. Um, I was there for six years and uh, I considered it really beautiful, holy work. I I absolutely loved it. Um, I worked with a tremendous amount of families and um, was with them through, you know, really difficult journeys. Um, And after six years, I decided it was time to step away. Um, And literally about two months after I left, I was diagnosed with my own cancer. Wow. Um, So, yeah. So um, it's been a really interesting journey, kind of like a a strange Mm -hmm. cycle, right? Um, Interestingly enough, uh, prior to working in the Pediatric Cancer Center, I had randomly chosen uh, women with breast cancer to do my dissertation on, um, mostly because it was a, a readily available population. So here I, you know, did a dissertation on women with breast cancer in a local hospital uh, close to where I live. Then I worked um, in the pediatric cancer center and then the same hospital where I collected data for my dissertation was where I was diagnosed. So kind of yes. creepy, right? Like you know, too much, but um, yeah. So, um, you know, I have a whole story to tell in terms of what I've done with um, with my own cancer and my professional experience. I also became a personal trainer and I'm sure we'll get into that. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that with us. That's just so crazy that you were literally in involved in research for what you ended up needing in your own personal life. And just even seeing how families, you know, going through pediatric cancer, were going through their journey that must have had an impact on how you handled your own diagnosis. A hundred percent. You know, I, um, from a research standpoint, knew all of the things to do when talking to children about cancer, when sharing diagnoses. I knew all of the research variables, right? But when you're in uh, that position, it feels really different. Um, Uh, You know, I um, unfortunately had cancer twice. So the first time I had cancer, um, uh, it's called DCIS, which is considered like a very, very early cancer. Um, And what I needed was surgery. Um, And the only other treatment that I was going to necessitate was um, hormone, like hormone Mm -hmm. treatment, you know, pills. meds, um, you know, going forward. And so really there was no discernible way um, other than surgery, other than physically to know that I had cancer. And so when I was talking about it with my children who were very young at the time, they were three Mm -hmm. and seven, um, you know, it was a different kind of uh, discussion because normally when you're talking with children about cancer, you you very much want to use uh, clear words, right? You want to use the word cancer. You want to talk about you know, uh, mm-hmm. you want to be honest, yeah. right? Um, but because I wasn't going through any kind of 
treatment that anybody would see. Um, and because also at the time in my own identity, I was rather private about everything mm -hmm. that I was going through. Um, I talked about having boo-boos in my boobies. That's kind of how mm -hmm. I talked about it with my kids. But it was different, very, very different the second time when I had a recurrence, very different um, because they were older and, um, you know, and it was, it was a much more serious discussion and it involved science and, you know, conversations about uh, life and death and, and sickness and it was much more powerful. So I also think that even though we're taught, you know, to talk about cancer in a very specific way with kids, I know from my own experience that the conversations were very different, number one, based on their age and cognitive level of understanding, and number two, based on my own experience of cancer and how I saw it, where I was at in my own identity. Yeah. You know? So when you had a relapse, how many years later was that from the original? Seven years? Seven. Was it the same one, yeah. same relapse, like the same type of cancer, or did you have a, a different one? There's, believe it or not, they're still not 100% wow. sure. Um, the cells looked the same. Um, they, they were fairly, it was, the, it was in the exact same space. I actually had probably less than a 5% chance mm -hmm. of relapse. Um, so I always say I'm the luckiest, mm -hmm. a lucky person I know, right? Like I'm waiting to, I should play lotto because I've got like these really crazy odds, right? Um, but um, yeah, so we think it was a, a recurrence. Um, I even asked my doctor, which is better? Is it better to have a recurrence of the same cancer or is it, you know, better to have a new cancer, right? And, you know, that sort of, um, it's, it's, a, it's a trick question, <laughs> right? But, um, you know, uh, so it was seven years yeah, later. Yeah, so your kids were significantly older at that point, yeah. Correct. My oldest right now is six years old. And so when my youngest, or when my, he's not my youngest, my youngest is two my cancer child is four and then the six-year-old. So when we were telling my six-year-old last year about his brother having cancer, he, he asked me the questions about death. Um, but that's because we had a personal family member pass away, you know, the year, the year prior. So, um, I don't think that's really common for five-year-olds to ask about death. Well, developmentally children don't really actually understand that death is is permanent and irreversible until the end of the seventh year of life. Um, many parents will swear that their kids know, but literally the structure of the brain cognitively, they can know that somebody died, but they may say, um, will they still be at my dance recital next week? Right? Like they, they might think that they understand the concept of death, but they don't know that it's permanent and irreversible. It's just a cognitive thing that doesn't happen until the end of the seventh yeah, year. That's of crazy. Life. That's crazy. So yeah. after your diagnosis and the reoccurrence, um, you went on to be a, a health coach, personal fitness coach, personal trainer. Personal trainer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, throughout my cancer journey, um, one of the things that you know, we know about the experience of cancer is that you feel like your mm -hmm. body betrays you and you feel very out of sync. And it's obviously difficult for children to articulate that or even know that experience mm -hmm. if they're so, so little. Um, but for adults, you know, it's, it's like you've been going along, right? And you feel healthy, you look healthy. Um, and then the doctor's like, no, you're not, yeah. right? And it's, you know, and so even when we talk about like this palpable, right? For me, I didn't feel anything. 
um, what happened with me was that I, um, uh, my husband and I decided we wanted a third child. And um, I kind of, and I was young. I was only 37 years old the first time. And I had decided I better get a mammogram and get it out of the way. And, you know, I'm probably going to be nursing for the next year. And so by the time I'm done with mm -hmm. all of this, it'll be 40. So it'll be the time for my first mammogram. Maybe I'll just have it now. And I actually found out, you know, for my first mammogram that wow. I had cancer. Um, so I had no idea. Right. So we know that like you're, you feel, you're, at least I felt like my body betrayed me. And so one of the ways that I felt like tremendous sense of control was I researched whatever variables uh, were involved in um, empowering people, right? Coping variables, things that we could do to make ourselves healthier, ways to combat cancer, foods to eat, to prevent relapse, anything. For me, that was a way that I could mm -hmm. gain control. Um, so I became really, really interested in fitness. Uh, I am definitely a gym rat. Um, and the more I got into fitness, the stronger I felt, the healthier I felt, and the further away from illness I felt. And when I started to literally physically develop muscles and, and feel like really strong and healthy, the notion of being sick was so far removed from me. So I was on that path. And then I started researching a lot more about how exercise can have so many um, health and psychological benefits for us. And I knew it because I experienced it. And then in my private practice working with patients, I started purporting all the benefits of exercise. I would find myself working with women who were depressed and I would say, try and do some squats at night, right? And like, I just lived it and I really believed it. And so I decided to become a personal trainer and along the way, I was being trained by a woman who was a professional uh, figure competitor. Um, and she, you know, used to say, maybe you'll do a show one day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, no way in the world that I would ever stand on a stage in stripper heels and a bikini and flex my muscles. That is completely <laughs> not me. And she would say, you know, very defensively, there's a lot more to it, Renee. And I'm like, that's fine. You can do that, but that'll never be me. And the more I started working out, I started getting really cut and shredded, right? And people would start to come up to me and say, are you going to do a show? And I was like, why does everyone keep asking me, am I going to do a show? And then at one point, I turned to my trainer and I'm like, what's this whole idea with the show? Like, what do you do? And she said, it's pretty much everything that you've been doing. You just have to really clean up your diet. And I started, I was near the five year um, mm -hmm. mark of being out of cancer for five years. And I saw that as like a beautiful way to honor, um, you know, overcoming cancer and regaining control of my body. So I became a, you know, I entered a figure competition. So it was the way that I, uh, the, participating in a figure competition uh, was a way to honor my five-year anniversary from having um, gotten over cancer. I don't know how you say it, uh, getting through treatment. I don't know, not having cancer. Um, and I saw it as a beautiful way to just sort of mark to myself that I was back in control of my body. Um, and it was a really, a really cool mm -hmm. experience. Um, and I did it again. And I'm hoping to do it one more time, um, at least, because it's just a really neat, uh, it's a neat mind-body thing for me. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Um, and then I opened up a center um, 
which is called the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change. And my space is like super funky and cool. You walk in and it's half gym and half stodgy psychotherapy office with my mahogany desk and diplomas. And then the other side is like, you know, dumbbells and, and bench presses and TRX and all this cool stuff. And I have a full uh, model of integration. Um, and I kind of created something that I think is very, very unique and I'm super proud of. And it's, um, it's a, a paradigm of mind-body, right? So we, it's very much about psychotherapy and integrating exercise. But at the same time, there's a tremendous amount um, involving visual imagery um, and cognitions. Um, and I don't yeah, know if you absolutely. want me to talk about that, but I think it's, I think it's super important for healing uh, and super important for chronic illness and cancer and trauma. Um, so what I do is, you know, I may be discussing any kind of issue with somebody um, and we work out the issue um, and sort of try and expand on the issue through exercise. So uh, for instance, um, I've been working with a kid who's been mm -hmm. bullied, right? And so as we're talking about like the, you know, his self-esteem and, and how painful bullying is for him and how he feels very disempowered, I'll have him come over to my weights and he'll literally be doing like bicep curls and I'll have him close his eyes. And each time he's bringing the, you know, the um, dumbbells to him, I'll have him think about like bringing in strength and power and control and on, you know, and as he um, brings the dumbbell away from him, um, I'll think about him, he'll, he will think to himself that he's like getting rid of any sense of uh, fragility or any sense of vulnerability. And, and each time it's sort of like, you know, it's visualization combi combined with mantras, you know, like, um, and, and there's a lot that we can do with it, you know, outside of even here, you know, it could be him putting pictures of somebody that he regards as strong or, you know, and for younger kids in particular who love to wear little capes yeah. and right. It's like, you know, thinking about this person who you, you regard as strong and capable that, you know, and some kids will tell me like flash or Spider-Man, right. It's like, carry a picture of them with you in your backpack or surround yourself with them and, you know, have a conversation with them and let them, and you can borrow your strength, you know, some of their strength, they're giving some of it. And so all of these things are incorporated into the visualizations and it's very unique for each person. Um, I've worked with adults who have come from an extremely uh, competitive uh, world in um, their professional domain and, you know, they want to get away from it or they feel like they've lost a sense of who they mm -hmm. are through their work, right? And so they will come over to my bench press and they'll take the dumbbell at their core, right? And they'll think like, this is where I'm at now. And as they're doing like a chest fly, opening up their arms and expanding, they will visualize like all the places where they want to grow and expand. That's amazing. Right? Um, it is. And it's super cool. And um, there's so much that we can do with cognitions. And I know that, you know, people know about the importance of cognitions, but I don't think it's been integrated mm -hmm. in this way. And even with food, you know, you know that there are tremendous, um, there's tremendous power mm -hmm. in food, right? I'm sure you've heard about magic mushrooms and, and my things that we know that can, you know, help with 
um, fight free radicals and, and a strong antioxidants, right? And so part of my journey was to um, research all of the foods that were mm -hmm. beneficial, right? Because that was a way that I can mm -hmm. gain empowerment. I would do anything that I could to keep this cancer at bay. And so when I eat food, I'm not just gulping down my food. As I'm eating food and not, you know, pretty much with everything, it's a very spiritual, mindful practice for me. I'm closing my eyes as I'm drinking my green tea. And not only am I holding the mug and feeling the warmth and smelling the green tea and enjoying the peace and having this mindful moment, but as I'm drinking the green tea, I'm thinking this has polyphenols and this is, you know, this fights free radicals. And as you're drinking this, you are helping yourself combat cancer. And as you're taking this in, you're providing yourself with good stuff that's helping you and healing you. And I literally do that with everything. And there's so much power in our cognitions, you know, what we mm -hmm. think we become, right? And, and there's study after study that shows how powerful our cognitions are and our visual. And I, I have a whole thing with visual imagery. When I was going through my own treatments, I came up with my own visual imagery for, you know, what was going to fight my cancer. There was a, um, a researcher in the 1970s, his name was Carl Simonton, and he wrote this book on getting well again. And he was one of the first to talk about the real benefits of visual imagery with cancer patients. And he had patients visualize the Pac-Man, uh -huh. right? The video game Pac-Man chomping away at their cancer cells. And there was dramatic reduction in their tumors, dramatic. And so we know that visual imagery is a very, very powerful thing, right? Like, when my daughter takes a test, you know, and she's like, I'm going to bomb, I'm going to bomb. I'm like, if you think you're going to bomb, you're going to bomb. you got to walk in and say, I studied really hard. I'm going to rock this, right? So much in life, of, in everything that we do is our thoughts about it, right? And so with illness, with it is so important to focus and concentrate on health and wellness and, you know, how we're going to overcome and you know, see ourselves visually in very powerful ways. Um, and so, yeah, so I've- So I got a question all. for yeah. you. Um, because yeah. children don't have that type of, I mean, they really don't have that cognitive ability, you know. Um, but, in let, but if their parents sit with them, right? And, and even make it a, let's sit down for two minutes and think about, you know, Pac-Man's eating away at the yucky cells or using even their developmental language, swiper coming in and, uh, yeah. you know, from Dora, swiper coming in and swiping all those yucky cells. Let's see swiper coming in and swiping all the yucky cells. You know, that's very powerful and children can pick up something from that. Okay. That's really interesting, you know, because I know, like you said, a lot of this research that we do as a parent, you know, versus a cancer survivor, but it's still the same concept that we're trying to gain a sense of control. Like how do we yeah. help our bodies or our children's bodies heal from cancer through diet, through any, anything really at the end of the day, how do we get a sense of control over something that we're, that really made us feel powerless, you know? And so we've done a lot of research as well on the diet side. And um, for us, it's been a little bit challenging implementing certain things with my cancer kid because 
you know, he's a kid and he's like, yeah. I don't want to eat that. Like my taste buds are, even the things that he yeah. used to love before chemo treatment, he's like, Mm-mm, not touching it. And then right. next week he'll be like, all right, I guess I'll eat it, you know, but then he'll go back to not liking it a few weeks later. And so, you know, that's definitely a challenge when they're really young. Yeah, for sure. But back to your, back to the topic that you just, um, talked about a second ago, like, you know, when children are too young to sort of, uh, think about Mm -hmm. these things visually, children pick up a lot from their parents, you know? And so if a parent is sitting there with a child saying like, I believe that the, you know, we kids pick up a lot about trauma, right? Like to, for, to give you an example, I will work with couples who come in and tell me they're about to get a divorce. And I'll say, your kids know, oh no, our kids know nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I meet the kids and they're like, oh yeah, mom and dad are getting a divorce. Right. Like children pick up at a cellular level, things that their parents are experiencing, which is why honesty obviously is so Mm -hmm. important with kids. But if a parent is, is using all of their energy to like come up with positivity, right. And they're sitting with their child, you know, and talking about like this visual imagery and, and, you know, and using it as a coping technique, right. That we're going to try this, um, I think that kids pick up on that. I think that they internalize that, that energy and that hope. And that's amazing. Um, yeah. You know, when you, when you describe that, I think the closest that we did with my son and this actually, you know, the week or two prior to him, um, having his first set of scans at the, like the nine, 10 week mark, we're, we're Christian. Obviously you can see my crosses in the background. Can can you tell? Um, but <laughs> I, I remember those weeks we were so big on like, you know what, Jesus is going to come while you're sleeping. He's going to lay his hands and I would physically lay my hands on top of his head. I'll say, Jesus will lay his hands on your head and he will remove that tumor. He's just going to pull it out, you know, from you while you're sleeping and you will have no more cancer. And I remember the two days before he had his first MRI, he was like, mommy, I want to see Jesus. And I was like, you will see Jesus, Jesus, you know, again, Jesus is going to come. He's going to come over, you know, take it out of your head while you're asleep and there's going to be no more tumor. And then two, two days later, we found out that he was NED. And so, you know, that was just pretty, pretty cool, you know, and I was hoping that he would pick up on like, you know, even during the hard times, we still try and cling to whatever little faith that we have. Cause you know, here I am telling him that. And part of me, like in my mind, I'm saying, God, I really wish this really happens. You know, like you want to have that much of faith, but I'm like, I'm going to tell him without a doubt, like this will happen because I want him to have that much at least, you know, even if I have a little bit of doubt in my mind where I'm like, I want to have faith Lord, but man, like, you know, you, Right. And I, I think that there's a, it's, it's like a kind of frightening mm-hmm. line there, right? Because we never right. want to promise that something is happening. We never want to promise uh, that the cancer will be taken away or that somebody won't die. We, we don't have that ability, right? So I think it's, it's you know, I think that a, a good thing to do is to just talk about the power of these things, like the power of faith, the power of visualization that, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, believe as much as we can believe. And we really believe this and we're hoping that it happens, but we can never, I know, right. We can never guarantee, you know? And so it's more about like, we know that this is something that can really help us. And so we're going to go with it. 
right? We're gonna, and, and it's the same thing, like as you're speaking, right? It's the same thing with, with me, right? Like I can visualize and visualize and visualize and try as much as I can with my thoughts to make something happen. But the reality is it's like, who right. knows what's gonna happen, right? All I can do is control my own thoughts. All I can do is try and control my destiny with my thoughts. But none of us know. None of us know about tomorrow. None of us know anything, right? And so all we can do is utilize all of the uh, variables that we know are available to us to the best mm-hmm. of our ability, you know, and, and it's up to God, the universe, whomever. So I would yeah. like to kind of go back to your work in pediatric oncology. So yeah. during your time there, what do you feel were some of the, like the elements that were just screaming out to you in terms of like things that were missing in the therapeutic standpoint for the entire family, because the children have the chance to go to like play therapy and see their own therapist there at the children's hospital. But like in terms of the rest of the family, what do you think are some of the things that were lacking and need to be worked on? Um, I will say that I worked for a phenomenal yeah. uh, center and I, I will say that they were really great at um, offering amazing services to, to the siblings. You know, we had therapy for siblings. We, we even had a grandparent group. I mean, I thought that we were pretty. That's amazing. amazing. Um, it, it was, but that being said, I think that there are always things that go on with patients that healthcare providers just, you know, don't know, can't account for, can't, you know, don't know to make better. Um, One of the things that I wrote about in my book um, is the experience that I had as a psychologist. I would, my job was to walk into each room, right? New, new patient and be like, Hey, I'm Renee. Right. I was, it was very casual. I would introduce myself to the kids. I was fun. I was silly. Right. I'd play video games with them. I, you know, it was, but my, you know, after I got to know families and I would knock on the door when they were in for treatment, they would all many, many times. I mean, this is really like a salient memory for, for me. They would look at me sometimes like deer in the headlights and they would be like, why are you coming in? Do you know something? Right. And I'm like, what? Right. I'm here Mm -hmm. to play video games. Right. But there's a tremendous sense of disempowerment with patients, right? That I myself experienced firsthand. And it was the first moment that I really, when I was a patient, it was the first moment that I really connected with that experience of tremendous disempowerment where I had a professional walk in the room and I was waiting for test results. And I was like, do you know something, right? Do you know, like, I thought that they knew, right? And there's always a sense that people feel like, other people know and that somehow they don't know. Mm-hmm. It's scary, right? So I think that, you know, it's not so much about services that are missing. It's more about uh, on- oncological staff and healthcare providers in general, like healthcare providers across the board, starting to become a little bit more aware of trauma, mm-hmm. of a patient's experience of trauma, of this deep feeling of disempowerment, of um, ways that healthcare providers can uh, more effectively treat uh, families with dignity and respect and, and know a lot more about who they were way before this mm-hmm. diagnosis, right? Because it shouldn't be, you know, treating 
you know, a kid with cancer, right? It's like you're treating this person, this whole person who happens to have just gotten mm -hmm. cancer, right? Like the cancer is just a piece of their identity. Um, I, another thing I talk about in my book is when I was getting a scan, um, they, there was a, a, a fear for a moment that my tumor had metastasized to my brain and they sent me down for this emergency scan, which was quite mm, a great day. I imagine. And I, of course, right? I know. That was your morning. Well, <laughs> right? It was like, oh, I was in that scan. Where were you? Well, I was at the gym, right? Like, I mean, so um, I went down for the scan and while I was there, I was doing this intake with this woman and she said to me, oh my God, you have the best biceps. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. And she's like, how do you get those biceps? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm a personal trainer. And, and she was like, oh my gosh. She's like, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And I'm like, sure. So meanwhile, I'm like in this trauma mode of, you know, do I have a brain tumor? And we start talking about like how she can get a good booty, <laughs> right? And it may sound, it may sound like, oh my gosh, how could she do that? But it was the most amazing thing that could have happened to me because one of the things that we need to acknowledge, back to your question, or healthcare providers need to acknowledge, is that we're full people. We have jobs, we have identities, we're mommies. We, we have a lot more that we want to you know, be known for other mm -hmm. than cancer, right? And so she walked me into the scan room and she had two friends there and she's like, you guys, she's a personal trainer. And then this one's like, how can I get my booty to not sag? And this one's like, I've tried, you know, these squats, but they're not working. And I was literally sitting there in my hospital gown and I was modeling for them how to do like Romanian deadlifts, like <laughs> literally. And it was the greatest thing for me because in those moments, I forgot about the fact that like I was in the middle mm -hmm. of this trauma and more importantly, there were aspects of my identity that were important and were giving back to somebody else. And I wasn't just this helpless cancer patient who was at the mercy of everybody and had no answers and was fragile. And, you know, so to answer your question in a very roundabout way, although my center had amazing services, I think that a, a really integral piece that's missing is, um, you know, a, a real background on trauma for everyone mm -hmm. involved, lots of training, um, lots of dialogue with individual patients on what it is that they want. At my center, they were really great in terms of doing contracts with kids. Like we did like Brandon's rules, right? And it was like, if you're getting your port access, you know, who do you want in the room? What game do you want to be playing? Do you want to look or do you want to be distracted? If you do want to be distracted, do you want to play my spy or do you want bubbles, right? Like we had a whole thing. If the band-aid's being ripped off, do you want us to count to three? Do you want us to just do it? Like we had all of these rules, which were so great for kids, you know, but like we stopped that, right? And not all centers even mm -hmm. offer that, but we stop those things somehow when we grow up right? We stop asking patients, what do they need? Right. And they're really just some basic things, you know? And I remember when I had um, my first major surgery, I asked my doctor if he could play a particular music during surgery. Oh. Right. And he's like, right. Why? Because Andrea Bocelli's voice gives me a tremendous sense of peace, right? And I've read study after study talking about when we're under, right? We can hear, we can... Right. And I'm like, would you do that for me? And he's like, of course. 
It's like, what song do you want me to play? Right? So like, we have all of these plans for birth, right? We have birthing plans. Do you want an epidural? Do you not want, do you want to have a, a your baby in a bath yeah. with a doula, right? We have, you know, um, healthcare proxies. How do we want to die, mm-hmm. right? Like who's going to make our decisions? But we don't have so many uh, choices, decisions, um, uh all of the time with with different healthcare providers, you know, how they communicate news, how long we wait for test results, how, you know, so many different things. And some centers are really amazing, but even the amazing ones, you know, it's such an experience of helplessness and disempowerment that I think people would really benefit from learning a lot about, you know, what the experience of disempowerment is. you know, asking permission for certain things, telling your story, right? Like learning, learning a lot more about that. Um, you know, friends and family members, you know, I, I remember I used to feel very betrayed when somebody would come over to me and be like, oh my gosh, I heard everything you're going through. And I'm like, number one, who are you? Right. Number two, I've only told like four people in my life. So how do you know my story? Right. Because as somebody who's experienced trauma, our story is right. our own. And one of the ways that we regain a sense of mastery and control is by telling our story and deciding who we want to tell our story yep. to, right? Who, you know, even with, uh, you know, in the horrific situation when somebody has the death of a child, some parents will say, I have three children. And some parents will say, I have two children, right? And sometimes they will acknowledge the loss to a stranger, but they might not acknowledge it to somebody that they know well. It, there has to be like a sense of power and control over their own story that they, they get to make the decisions because that's a way that they regain a small sense of power in this extremely powerless. You know, you say that. And the first thing that pops into my mind is as an adult, you have a little more control over who you tell your story to. Right. And so as a parent, like my child's story is kind of part of my story, but he has his own personal part of his story. And so, you know, nowadays we're dealing with social media. And so one of the questions I tried to ask in a group, which was censored still, <laughs> but I was like, this is a legit question. Like, I want to know, has anyone just put their children's pictures, like sad pictures? I don't put pictures of my child when he's in suffering or anything that he would be upset about later on in in his future. Um, I usually just post pictures of him smiling, being okay, but I know plenty of parents who actually do use those pictures. And part of me is like, I just want to know how these children are perceiving this. Like not, I'm not passing judgment, but I want to know the psychological effects on the children. Like they, they have pictures of themselves at their worst, like throwing up, like absolutely worse. Honestly, it's an amazing question because it's not just, you know, it, it, if you think about even a child who's not experiencing illness, right. I've had my 16 year old daughter say, do Mm -hmm. not post that. Right. And it's like, you know, and I've had the exact same experience where she'll take a private bit, like a silly video of me. And and all of a sudden I, you know, she's posting it on TikTok. I'm like, what are you doing? Right? Like none of us want, we want, we want to Mm -hmm. be in charge. We want to, 
right? And so especially when somebody, I mean, you're bringing up such an, an extremely important point, right? Like, and then it's like, well, how young, you know, how young do they have to be to, you know, to be able to mm-hmm. give permission, right? And I think that this is an important aspect of, of development and raising children, right? Because ideally we should be having more discussions mm-hmm. with our children, Right. And then it's like, well, how do I have a discussion with a four-year-old? Right. What does a four-year-old know? Right. But it's like part of the way that they start to develop a sense of self is by having the opportunity to sort of think about things and try them out. Right. Whether it's, you know, posting pictures. And I know it sounds kind of like, well, how is this, you know, right. It's like the younger they are, it's like, Mm -hmm. how are they going to know? But I do think as parents, we are making decisions for our children and, and you bring up such a like, such an important point because it's like who wants to be who wants their pictures posted when they're at their worst right like and why why does somebody else have permission to do that Mm -hmm. right it's like you know an extremely vulnerable disempowering experience and it's like maybe that you know their parent thinks it's okay to share but why would we assume that they're okay with that right and Mm -hmm. even their story right it's like you're right you know i remember one of the as an adult I remember one of the experiences I had was my parents, adult parents, told all of their friends what was going Mm -hmm. on with me, right? And they did it because they needed Mm -hmm. somewhere to cope. They needed support, right? And I don't begrudge them that, but when I had people come over to me knowing intimate details of my experience um, that I hadn't even yet shared some of those details with my children. You know, I was pregnant at the time. I had a whole bunch mm-hmm. of stuff going on. Um, so when when I had these people who were not, you know, significant to me coming over and talking to me about things that I hadn't shared with the most special people, I was like, you know, it, it yeah. enraged me. And it, I felt like, so you bring up a really interesting research question I think in terms of like you know children and and exposure and and in just in general social media in general but like particularly for children who are you know going through trauma absolutely you know it's like we so I worked a lot with teens before all of this and so I would constantly hear in the office you know in my in my clinical office they would say my parents are posting pictures about me. I asked them not to. And they basically would like, some of them would just be dismissive and say, it's my Facebook page. I can post whatever I want. And the sense of betrayal from the teens, from innocent pictures of like prom pictures or dance pictures or whatever, right? Like any other extracurricular event. And I'm like, I can't, I've been trying to wrap my head around what is this what does social media mean right now for our children who are going through pediatric cancer? Because right now um, they are, I mean, their whole lives are being exposed, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, like here's pictures of my kid, like puking blood and stuff, you know, it's like, it's just very graphic. Want that, right? It's like, would you as an, would you want that? Like, when if somebody's posting that about their own child, it has to come back to, well, would that be something that you would want posted about you? Right? And I think some of these, it, you know, because some people would be like, I'm okay with that because I want to raise awareness because that's that's the fine line that we are stuck in with childhood cancer is raising awareness of what 
childhood cancer really is versus, you know. Right, but do you put, but there's so many ways to raise awareness without um, exploiting, right? Like you can talk about that experience, but you need to have, it's like if you talk about any other kind of trauma, right? Like we can talk about it, but do we need to show the, a, a devast, the devastation of something for people to um, experience it? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I work with people of, of, you know, survivors of sexual yeah. assault and, and, you know, severe trauma, right? You know, like, do we need to show that in order for people to comprehend or, um, I, but I, I think that you're bringing up a really important um, area because, you know, I think part of it is also educating all parents, not just parents of kids with pediatric cancer, all parents about like, you know, how this is a developing mind and a, a person who's growing, but particularly kids who are going through something, you know, so adversive, right? That like, they need part of trauma. This is like education, right? Part of trauma is somebody, you know, learning to have a sense of empowerment, mm -hmm. right? And so like, we have to be aware of what makes them feel disempowered potentially, right? And I think that that's an important, really important. Wow, that's really, that's very valid because, you know, later on, they're going to, people are going to be, like you said, people will be coming up to them. Oh, I, I saw your pictures of you when you did this or when you were going through this and like know all their intimate details and visually see like they're the worst moment in their life. So it almost, it could be triggering. It could remind them of the worst thing. Cause if it were like, you mentioned like working with people of sexual assault, like, can you imagine if they had to look at their picture of the worst time of their life over and over again, you know, right? It's beyond betraying. It's like, how could you put me out there when I was so fragile? Yeah. Right. You know, so I think that, yes, some discussions need to be had with children, but once again, like when they're so little, yeah. how much do they understand? So the discussions also have to come back to educating parents you know, all across the board, educating parents, my adult yeah. parents, right? A parent of a four-year-old, <laughs> right? Everybody, because that's, but it's true because people don't, very well-intentioned mm -hmm. people, right? Very well-intentioned people are doing things for very good reasons to raise awareness, to get their own social support, right? No right. one's trying to hurt people, but we have to understand that the experience of trauma is that of, you know, is one of disempowerment, right? And one, one of the things we know is that, we have to continuously ask permission, you know, let somebody tell the story on their own terms when they're ready to who they want, what, right? It's a very important part of uh, mastery. Yeah, that's amazing. So I know, you know, you have a wealth of information. You not only worked in pediatric oncology, um, but also you go through your own personal story. Speaking of the story, you have written a book and you've mentioned it a few times. So I want to give you a chance to plug in your book. Tell us the name of it, when it comes out, if it's available, all that. Thank you. Um, my book is called Chemo Muscles, uh, Lessons Learned from Being a Psycho-Oncologist and Cancer Patient. Um, it uh, came out in February um, and I was supposed to be doing a whole book tour, but now mm -hmm. it's all virtual due to COVID. Um, it's available on Amazon, um, and I'm I'm super super proud of this book um, for many many reasons. But um, I'm super proud of it from a personal standpoint because 
Uh, it took me seven years to write, and not because I'm a slow writer, um, but seven years to write because I, you know, it represented where I was at in my identity. You know, I when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, um, I, I was I saw myself as very fragile and weak and vulnerable, um, and had a lot of struggle with um, my my beauty and my identity for the surgery that I had to endure and and everything right. And so and I was very quiet about it. Um, and as time progressed, um, and then I ended up having a recurrence my identity changed so much and um, how I experienced myself changed so much. And now I'm like literally poured my soul out and told the most intimate mm -hmm. details. Uh, and so number one, it's really important to me for that. But um, the reason that I think the book is so valuable is that I talk from a psychological standpoint about um, a lot of coping variables that can help individuals going through cancer, as well as their friends and family members who really want to help, but often will say mm -hmm. wrong things. Uh, and you know that as a parent, it, it's like very well-intentioned. People say the oh, worst yeah. things in the world. And I think that people just don't know. They want to help, but they just don't know. And so from my personal experience, from my professional experience, I talk about that. Um, so specific coping variables. I also talk about uh, things that we can uh, advocate for ourselves with healthcare providers um, because we have tremendous choice. And as patients, we feel so vulnerable and at their mercy. And mm -hmm. I'm a healthcare provider, right? That we need to learn that we have much more of a choice, and that you know there's so many statistics about uh, the importance of our healthcare team. You know, the relationship to our healthcare team can actually um, can actually have very, you know, uh, implications for mortality, right? Like it's a really important thing that we're treated, you know, and we feel like somebody cares about us. So a lot of things about healthcare providers. Um, and, you know, of course the integration of mind and body and these cognitions and visual imagery and how important all that is. So I, I really believe in it. I think it's, it's very, very valuable, not just because I wrote it. I, I, I honestly think it's very bad. And I wish that it would have been a book that I could have read when I was going through all of this because, you know, it's a very isolating yes. experience. And I think, you know, to know that there are things that can really be helpful and to, you know, have words put to the experience is, is really meaningful. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it myself because I'm pretty sure there's stuff that I could take away from it as well. Um, it, is it available? Just Amazon. Okay. Amazon. And um, do you have a website as well? I do. It's um, drexelbert.com and yeah. everyone can spell my last name. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's D-R-E-X-E-L-B-E-R-T.com. Great. And it, if someone is in your area and trying to seek out therapy, they could go to that website and get more information. That's amazing. Well, thank you. And I'm virtual too. I'm, I'm all That's over great. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to have to start going virtual soon. I haven't done any work and I'm like, okay, we're getting near the end of treatment. I think. I'm so. So Thank happy you for you. We're I'm very, so, very blessed. Yeah. And you know, you have to market and you've got to like, right. You've got a really yeah. like, big thing, you know, each, each thing that you get through, right. Like in some way. Oh yeah. You know, we, we celebrate every milestone, every single milestone, <laughs> you know, 
my last day of chemo, I came into the center and because I had breast cancer, you know, it's all about mm-hmm. the hot pink, right? And so my last treatment, I wore a hot pink wig, even though I had full hair, or a hot pink wig, this hot pink feather boa, my hot pink Converse high tops, right? And I looked like a <laughs> nut, but it was all about like, I am celebrating this, right? Like I have been through it and I get to wear pink today. And my best friend took me to my treatment and she was humiliated. She's like, I don't know this woman, right? And there was a guy sitting in the waiting room. And he's like, this is awesome. And it, it was just so important, right? We have to- Not only it. is it important for you, so, but I think it also is important for the other people who are witnessing, you know? Um, I know, sure. unfortunately, our hospital has the ringing of the bell in a very private area. And I get that. Like, mm. you know, they want to respect- the people who don't get a chance to ring the bell. Um, but we've been to different centers and different centers, like one center has it very open, very public and everybody in the waiting area gets to witness it. And all the staff come in and, you know, do this big celebration, like a big old tunnel for them to run through, to ring the bell. And it's, I remember seeing that the very first week when we first heard of my child's diagnosis and I was like moved to tears. Cause I was like, that's, like, that's what we want. That's what we want. You know, we want to be able to bring them. So, so back to our discussion about like involving children, right? Even though your your little boy is so little, you can have a discussion with him about like, how does he want to mark this? Does he want to get a bell in the front of the house with bubbles and ice cream and, you know, ring the bell and have everyone come over and ring the bell or everyone come over and blow bubbles or, right? Social I know. Distance, Maybe no course. bubbles because, you know, you're... <laughs> and and it's part of his you know his repertoire it's part of his discussion and even though he's little right he's taking an active uh, an active say in in how he wants to mark yeah you know so well thank yeah. you so much for your time for sharing your story and such a pleasure it was such a pleasure you as to well. meet you really and you're and and you the if work you that have you're found doing this podcast so helpful or you just love the mission and family so chemotherapy thank you please kindly so, rate so this podcast if you want to support this podcast and ministry please consider becoming a patron you can visit patreon.com forward slash family chemotherapy you can become a patron for as little as three dollars a month that's less than a cup of coffee Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from Family Chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.